0: A lot of people don't know what codependency is, so you might be codependent and not even know it. And if you want to be independent instead of codependent, you might want to listen today. Because if you think someone, if you think your idea of codependency is just about uh, somebody living with someone who's addicted, it's way more than that. And you might be harming yourself by helping others. So listen, because there's neuroscience behind that. And we'll help you to be conscious of your subconscious.
1: All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the NeuroFlex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Mary Joy. Mary is a licensed mental health counselor, life coach, and Florida Supreme Court certified family mediator. She's a recovered codependent, and her transformative journey was featured in O Magazine. She's a best-selling writer for DailyOm.com, and her most popular course, From Codependent to Independent, is often in the top 10 and has sold tens of thousands of copies. She's a contributor to uh, to opentohope.com, Huffington Post, Prevention, Thrive Global, UpJourney, Psychology Today, along with a bunch of other very cool publications. So, Mary, really excited to have you on the show with us today.
0: I'm excited to be here. I, I love the the conversations that just flow. We're going to see what comes out today. It'll be nice to see what bubbles up out of both of our subconscious minds.
1: Here. <laughs> right, right. We shall see. So, um, tell me a little about just, you know, so you're being a licensed mental health counselor, kind of what. Did you always know that was the route that you wanted to take in terms of your career, or how did you exactly stumble into that?
0: Oh no. And I stumbled, absolutely stumbled. <laughs> no, I uh, my father was a psychiatrist. So it seems like a natural progression, but he wanted me to be a psychiatrist. And I'd have never made it through medical school. I would have passed out and flunked out. I, I can't cut people open and I can't stitch them back up. So this is not a good this is not a good thing for someone who wants to be a doctor. Um so I joined uh I w- I was a theater major and actually my father disowned me, which is which means some no one owns you. So if anybody out there's been disowned, can you reframe that please? No one owns you anymore, so you have some freedom, though they may catapult you out into freedom when you're not ready. Uh, that's what happened to me. So I, I put myself through college as a stagehand and then went on the kiss tour. And from that, I became a songwriter in Nashville because I thought everyone wrote songs. So to me, the common thread of being a professional songwriter and being a therapist was getting people in touch with their emotions. But I, I worked at Warner Brothers as a songwriter. They sold to AOL. So a lot of us got downsized. My contract going to be up in two and a half years I knew it wouldn't be renewed so I said time to go to grad school so I thought about law I I resisted psychology and counseling and I said you know what honestly I've been helping people a long time I've been a therapist to four rock stars like I said my first job out of college I worked for KISS I mean that's like you know I was an assistant that's like that's a being a therapist when you're an assistant to people like that and you have to be really calm everybody said you must have been wild I went do you realize what it's like to work for four rock stars for three years you got to be you know somebody's got to be the stability in that equation so um I, I think just helping people has always been something that I've done but as a codependent I would go to the dark side of helping people to my own demise or my own early demise as they say too. um to my own detriment i could be a benefit to others be a detriment to myself so that is the journey i had to take to learn and in graduate school i learned i was codependent and that's what brought me to really study in depth on what that was because i thought i was just being nice So if anybody out there thinks so, i'm just being nice and no one appreciates me this might be for you to hear
1: <laughs> okay and yeah what was was it in a class that you went when which you were learning about it, or how did you exactly realize yes, that- I,
0: it, was, it was actually my last class before my internship, and I was about to work in a drug and alcohol rehab, and I wasn't in recovery. And mm-hmm. my professor was a very wise woman. Her first name was Sharon. That's all I need, probably need to say. And she was a neuropsychologist, and she used to be a codependent because her, her dad was an alcoholic. And uh, she she was pretty remarkable. Somebody asked me a very personal question about the kiss tour and rock and roll and you know, the 70s, well, not the, yeah, it was the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and I was about to answer it, and she said, you don't answer it, and you shouldn't have asked it, and she said, you see me after class, meaning me, so I said, what did I do, I'm like 45 years old when I'm back in graduate school, I felt like a, you know, 10-year-old again, and she said, you are so severely codependent, she said, you know, you have no boundaries. You've been in show business too long where people give and they share and they pour their hearts out. And she said, I'm going to teach you how not to be codependent. I balked and said, I'm just being nice. I'm just, you know, I'm being open. And she said, no, 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 no. You cannot go to work as a therapist or drug and alcohol uh, counselor and have loose boundaries because they will, they will eat you alive. Because you're not in recovery and they, they have a tendency, you know, they're very used to lying about their addiction. She said, you're going to believe them and you're not going to be able to help them. So it wasn't so much. They were going to fool me. I wasn't going to be able to help them. So she really, um, she set me on a course for recovery pretty quickly. I said, "Wow, I wish someone had told me this like my, you know, first year into grad school." But you know, you learn on the spot, and she was right. I got eaten alive a couple times, but also learned from it, and that's what internships are for. Uh, and it, and it started to turn me around, and then I did further work too. So hopefully, that answered that.
1: It does. It does. And before we go any further in in discussing the the topic of codependency, can you just like uh, give the listeners, just a a definition, how would you define codependency?
0: Yes, it is. I call it a compassion turning into a compulsion. Okay. So compassion is lovely. We all need it. We, especially in this world today, compassion is not codependency. Codependency is when you're so compassionate, you don't have any self-care you, you give out Do you burn out. Um, some some codependence to the spectrum of it. There's controlling kind, there's the doormat kind. I was more of the doormat, but you give so much, you give out, or you allow people to take so much from you, you have nothing left to give. You lose yourself caring for others. And that's, you know, we have to care for children. We have to care for the elderly. But when you don't care for yourself while you're caring for others and you just completely lose yourself, um, codependence actually can die before uh, the people they take care of. Because we've all heard that caregivers sometimes pass away before the person they're caring for. Very common. And that is the form of codependency. So be very careful if you're one of those people who are giving to you, give out, or you're resentful when you give because people don't give back to you. you're giving to get, and you're really um, trying to make everyone else happy. So you'll feel happy because we get dopamine from giving all of us do. If we're not sociopaths, we get dopamine from giving, you know, we hear it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it is, but how can you give if you don't receive first? So it's a flow of giving and receiving. I'm trying to teach people because I did study the neuroscience of it professionally with, with, with an MD who works with addiction because codependency is a lot like addiction. You're getting feel good chemicals when you give to people. And that scared me straight. It did. I went, Oh, wow. I'm, I'm just, I'm just like the addicts I'm working with. Just like my professor told me, she said, you're just like them. You are just not taking a substance. So, wow. Interesting.
1: That is super interesting. I I definitely had never thought of that in that light before um, in terms of, so, so rather than Kind of using a substance to, to bring you up to get high it was sort of like you would use like other people and yes the, the their reactions that were giving you the dopamine burst exactly.
0: based on you your giving it, oh yeah like show business like oh people love me but it was so weird I, and i remember you so saw i was probably a therapist long before i was one. i remember asking gene simmons one time I said, what's it like to go from a hundred thousand screaming fans who adore you to these lonely hotel rooms at night? And I said, that's it. What a jolt to the system. Even I was feeling, and I wasn't on stage, but I was certainly, I was out there on, you know, on the stage, helping them and, or underneath the stage, at least. And I see all those fans and then everybody's gone and you're in a hotel room. You go from a hundred thousand people to zero. And, uh, it's very your people medicate you. I think show business people can be closet codependents. They're not about narcissism or or getting attention. It's more about we call it giving a performance. We actually do. And performers often end up in the hospital from exhaustion. So I think that, um, yeah, we use people to medicate. And here's the scary part. Narcissists and sociopaths use people to medicate. So do you see how somebody who loves to give like a codependent is going to end up in a relationship with someone who loves to get like a narcissist or a, a sociopath? Do you see both of them are using that um medication with people as a basis for their subconscious drives yowza so hopefully that sets some light on some subjects there
1: definitely so in terms of now having kind of the knowledge of this um what is the sort of like where you you mentioned earlier kind of drawing healthier boundaries um like how do you know properly like give some you know and receive some without overstepping overstepping and it becoming kind of an addiction
0: well it is a trial and error process I know that um when you've when you've gone on the dark side when you feel exhausted uh watch out for that you know the moment you feel any exhaustion say wait a minute am I just tired or did I give to somebody who's who doesn't appreciate me. I mean, really, if you're constantly giving and bailing people out who don't appreciate you, you're highly likely to get angry. Um, I, 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 you know, I've worked with a lot of researchers and talked to them. There's a man named Alan um, Rappaport who had talked about co-narcissism about how a, a child will morph into the child their parent wants them to be as an extension of an image. I, I know I did that as a child, being a psychiatrist's daughter, we can't have any problems. There's also a, a man named uh, Cartman and, and Dr. Cartman has a drama triangle. So codependents tend to rescue people. Then they get hurt by the people they rescue. And then they get angry and feel persecuted. And, and on goes this drama triangle that we need to break free of. And what it really is, is a trauma bond. Um, people get trauma bonded as codependents. A narcissist is nice to them, then not nice. We call it intermittent reinforcement, just like you train a dog. You know, you, you you know, it's this the the enforcement, the reinforcement, it's repetition. So a narcissist will be really really nice to you in the love bombing phase, then they're horrible to you and discard you, and so you're chasing after the dopamine. And the oxytocin, which is the trust hormone, after they've discarded you, which gives you cortisol and adrenaline and all the stress hormones. So you end up saying, why can't I break free of this person? You have cognitive dissonance. I know this person's bad for me, but why can't I break free of it? Because it isn't love. It might be a trauma bond. So I hope that explained it. I gave you a whole lot of information, a very small amount of time there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think that would be great to just kind of go further into that distinction, you know, between... Say love and a trauma bond, and and also maybe could be very interesting, like bringing in the neurotransmitters as you already did with like with the trauma bond being like the dopamine and oxytocin. Um, Oh yes. And then so so what what kind of is different in the brain when there is actual love rather than this uh, trauma bond we're talking about?
0: Well, when you feel love, you feel peace and you feel safe. You don't get anxious. I mean, you may, might get butterflies in your stomach, but, but here's, the, here's where the vagus nerve comes in. And those butterflies in your stomach are created by something called a vagus nerve. That's the same nerve that makes you sick when somebody breaks up with you, it makes you nauseated. The vagus nerve comes out of your brainstem under your skull. It's huge. It's V-A-G-U-S, by the way. It's not Las Vegas. It's Vegas, meaning wandering in Latin. So it wanders through your, your skull, your face, your jaw, your throat, and all your vital organs. And it's huge around your stomach and lower back. So when you, you know, I always say the same, same thing that takes your breath away at the Grand Canyon is the same thing that takes your breath away when you have a panic attack. It's just one is a negative emotion. One is a positive emotion. So same thing with butterflies in your stomach. When somebody's nice to you, it's like, oh, I feel so good and loving. And then when they take it away, you just get nauseated and sick. When you're in a real love relationship, all those chemicals in the honeymoon phase, they usually wear off around six months because your body just can't sustain, you know, the elevated honeymoon stuff. And you you get into a stable, peaceful, kind relationship. There's kindness, there's compassion. That's love. Can you, and you agree to disagree when you have an argument, you talk and converse instead of somebody trying to get their point across to you and you have to believe what they want. That's the difference between love and a trauma bond. No one's controlling anyone. Everybody in a loving relationship is a free agent. Even when you don't agree with them, everyone's a free agent you know, no one can control anyone. The moment you do that, you set wheels in motion that, um, if you're in codependence, you're trying to control people too. I tell you, it's not being selfless. It it dawned on me. I went, Oh, it's self-harm, but it also, I'm trying to relieve everyone else's anxiety to make my anxiety go away. So they'll be at peace with me. I don't, and I have to please dad. I have to please mom. Then you get married and you have to please a husband or please your friends. And you'll say things you don't mean you'll agree to things you don't agree to. And when I finally went on the final round of getting a grip on what it was, and I went to an MD and I said, explain to me what's going on in my brain. He said, you're just like an addict. You have a high tolerance for bad behavior. You were conditioned as a child to um, to you know keep family secrets because I was abused as a kid, keep family secrets, you know do what everyone says, and everything will be fine well it 's not fine because everyone else is fine, and your brain is telling you that protecting the perpetrator and taking on their shame is is the right thing to do, but actually it 's the opposite, so it creates kind of a trauma response of. Um, feeling like you don't count and you don't matter. You have to protect everyone else. So if anybody's out there and listening to this and it's ringing a bell, man, it's just like Pavlov's dog. When they ring a bell, it salivates. That's what your family may have done to you. The good news is because of your show, Toby, you you have neuroplasticity. You can change that. When you recognize your triggers, you can neutralize them. And that's when the beauty comes in. And I'll still recognize my trigger. I still do it. I'll still have codependent moments. I go, ah, no, you just said yes to something you know you meant no to. I will call that person back. And I said, um, I you know what, I I can't fulfill the obligation, and you just move on. You don't, you don't do you feel guilty? Yes, you have withdrawal symptoms when you detach from codependency, just like an addict, you're gonna feel anxious, you're gonna feel upset. You're going to be mad at people like me who tell you don't give so much, don't do so much. You're going to not understand the concept of self-love. I still don't like the term, so I think of it as self-respect. I can't care for others until I care about myself. I mean, I'm a therapist. I cannot go into eight hours of sessions and hold space for seven or eight different, completely different um, problems without having some self-awareness and taking time in between those sessions to get back in touch with myself
1: so mary what can you talk to me about sort of the the neuroscience of of healing codependency of what once you are at that point yes getting getting past that
0: Wow, well, the healing part oh you know it's kind of No one likes to hear the healing part. Everybody thinks there's a magic bullet. Wouldn't they love to hear that, Toby? It's like, Mm -hmm. it just over overnight. No, it's a lifelong process, just like recovery for addiction and, and relapse is part of the process of progress. So the beginning of healing is the recognition, as I said, and recognition means recognition, rethinking it. So you have to reframe it. I used meditation to do it. I would imagine the life I wanted and in doing that, and I didn't put other people in it or how, you know, they should be just imagine. And I, I have a YouTube videos about that. I, Cause I've written a book called codependent discovery and recovery 2.0. So I put my journey in there and I had to new to know what I didn't want so that I would know what I did want. And sometimes that's where you start with a codependence. So healing is knowing because they come into me all the time, just like I was, I don't know who I am anymore. I've, I've been such a chameleon morphing myself into what everybody else wants. I don't know who I am anymore. So first I start with who they aren't, you know, then, and then I deduce who they are. I also have a, an exercise in the book and, um, it's, uh, very easy to do. Uh, it's, it's kind of a tricky one because I'm asking them to list the qualities they would love in an ideal mate. They're always themselves. So when I tell them you do love yourself and this is who you are, that's an eye-opener for them in less than 10 minutes, we've just made a list. Then I'll make lists of what they don't want in their life while I'm deducing what they do want. So they're that way they leave that first session, knowing who they are, that they do love themselves and what they want. Now getting there's the hard part. The withdrawal symptoms is the part nobody likes to hear. It's going to cause anxiety. It's going to cause false guilt false shame. And I say false, it is faux. It is not real. It's just, it is a symptom, just like someone feels when they get off any substance, they're going to feel a need for it. Codependents feel a need to be needed. And I help them realize it's so much better to want to be wanted than to need to be needed. There's a big difference between needing a drink and wanting a drink, isn't there? It's a big difference. So I'm helping them kind of reduce the reactivity. I'm teaching them about their vagus nerve to to immediately discover in their body where those trauma triggers are, where their codependent triggers are, and to reduce the reactivity and to be responsive instead of reactive.
1: And how important it is it to kind of go back in someone's past and identify kind of like you know what. Their childhood was like what may have led them to the codependent behaviors uh, that they're currently exhibiting, um, versus just more so like addressing addressing those behaviors. Like the question, I guess I'm I'm trying to get at is, do you need to uh, do you need to dig up the past to have a clear sense of of what's going on, or are you able to just modify the behaviors going forward?
0: Wouldn't that be nice if I didn't have to dig up the past? But I call it emotional archaeology. We have to find the roots. I mean, if you're going to tear a weed out, do you just cut it off? No. No. <laughs> it's just going to, boom, it's going to actually, it's, if you cut a weed off, it's just going to make it more. I mean, even if you, it's not a weed, any plant, if you prune it, if you just cut it back, it's going to get bigger. It's going to be more, it's going to blossom even more. So you have to pull it out by the root. And in order to do that, yes, I need to find the root of their codependency. Sometimes it's just that they've had such nice parents who've taught them to be so nice to everyone. They believe everyone's the nicest person in the world. There's a term for codependency, Barbara Oakley coined called pathological altruism, just believing the best of everyone to the pathological. I mean, this is why people followed people like Hitler. They, oh, I'm I'm sure he means the best. They had no concept that you you can follow jim jones and you know become a a cult follower because you just oh this person has my best interest at heart they they may not you have to be very careful of that so it's very important to pull that root out because when you pull a root out into the sun what does it do it it withers and dies and so when that root comes i do it quickly i don't like to go through the details of it we just find the root make the connection between the past and the present so that they can fix it in the future. So it's, I don't st- spend too much time. Uh, I do inner child healings. That helps a lot to find out where that subconscious bubbles up. And um, it, when we when we find that root, then uh, when it's in the sun, yay, it's out.
1: And what can you tell me about the inner child sort of stuff? Because I feel like that's a popular topic kind of within, within psychology today. And just, I'm not, uh, I think... I haven't focused exactly on it in any past episode. Like what, how would you define the inner child?
0: Well, I know everybody out there, the moment they hear a song from their childhood or they see an image from their childhood, they get like, oh, you know, something in there. Or if they've been traumatized, like, ah. So we all, our inner child is alive and well. Um, Freud was, you know, Freud was wrong about some things, but he was right about what happens to you between one to six and that developmental phase, even if you don't remember it is crucial. So if you, if if you have your inner child alive and well in you, and we all do every day, you need to integrate your inner child. I actually, I actually call inner child healings accessing your inner adult, because you have a higher inner adult self. And if you haven't gone through your trauma as a child, or even it, not even trauma if you have not processed out what your child wants as opposed to what your adult needs to live a healthy healthy life you're going to always make decisions based on that subconscious child driving you we all do it every one of us do it uh, even down to the foods we eat you know we're all we're all raised to like certain foods certain things it's conditioning so if you don't recognize what's driving you subconsciously which is always that inner child And that's how your brain was wired. Your brain is wired for language from two to four years of age. Also, we learn trust and mistrust from zero to one. That was a researcher named Eric Erickson. And he was a developmental um, psychologist. And what happens to us back then, even if we don't remember it, our brains remember it. So if you have a cold parent who leaves you in the crib, you're going to learn helplessness and you might become codependent. Say, well, nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me, but maybe if I'm good enough, they'll love me. So they start trying to act out and be good enough to the contrary, a narcissist or a sociopathic kids. And maybe if I'm bad enough, they'll pay attention to me. So it's very important to know what drives your inner child. So you can use your adult self to come in and say, okay, now how am I supposed to grow up here? Time to mature, mature higher choices
1: and now in terms of in terms of that like kind of being able to develop a healthy trust and like wait the example that you were previously giving of people like blindly following someone like you know Hitler uh, much to the detriment of obviously everyone, um, everyone whereas other people obviously like have difficulty trusting anyone maybe even someone that is deserving of their trust so like how I guess as a therapist, are there any strategies or, or just what's your approach to developing like healthy levels of trust?
0: Trust. Okay. It, it's actually simpler. It, it's actually simpler than it seems. And, and I mess up with this all the time. I think we all do. We have to learn to trust ourselves first. And that that's going to be simpler than it seems too. Because uh, if, you, if you are a codependent or if you're a person who just doesn't trust, if you, you feel good about yourself around other people, you can trust that person. We hear all the stuff about that person's toxic. That person may not be a toxic person, but the person may be toxic for you. Not, you can't, I always say you can't trust everyone with everything, but you can trust some people with some things, including yourself. Like if I'm on a diet, I can't trust myself with a whole pizza in the room. Can't trust myself. You're not even in control of yourself sometimes. But the key to trusting other people is not to think, "Do I trust them? Am I looking at them? Am I judging them?" The what you need to look at again, go back to those vagus neurophysiological responses, neuroscientific. How do I feel about myself when I'm with someone? Do I stutter? Am I afraid? Does my heart pound? Do my hands shake? I mean, do I feel badly about myself around somebody? Does somebody try to make me feel guilty? Does somebody criticize me? You know, am I am I am I being swayed from my own opinions because their opinion of me matters? So it's very, very important that people become self-actualized enough to know, okay, I'm I'm who I am. And I don't feel good around this person. So this person may not be good for me. And you just limit your exposure to it. So trust is a matter of trusting certain people with certain things. I always tell people, you can trust me with a lot of things, but don't trust me to balance your checkbook. I'm really bad at math. I'm terrible at it. You know, really, we have to know that no, we're not trustworthy ourselves with ourselves. We're all going to mess up. So let people off the hook a little bit more, but also understand how you feel around somebody is more important than how you think they feel about you. Simpler than you think, isn't it?
1: It is, uh, but I assume probably like takes a while to develop that uh, ability to be so attuned to actually realize how you feel around a certain person or or understand why you're feeling a certain way around that person.
0: Yes. Yeah, like I've, I've left the presence of people And I feel very, um, energized and, and good and good about me and just good about, I don't ruminate over. I shouldn't have said this. I shouldn't have done that. Then there's other people. They seem perfectly fine, but I leave feeling just totally drained. And like I was on the defense the whole time, you know, the, uh, narcissistic people, they tend to ask just a barrage of questions that are just like the professor back to then you know people say tell me about this tell me about that especially you know if i open a can of worms like the kiss tour and people make all these assumptions people make assumptions and you start going on the offense the defense that's that's when you say okay you just you limit your exposure and back up and keep keep the conversation lighter really helps when you're meeting somebody to keep the conversation light. Like if you go on a first date, do not talk about your past relationships with this person. You may be giving that person your threshold for bad behavior, you know, just get to know people slowly. Trust is developed over time. It's not something that's instant. It just isn't, especially if it was somehow impaired in your childhood. And, you know, even environments can be, um a form of not trusting. I mean, people that grow up in, in, um, you know, dangerous environments, be it in out in the country where they feel completely alone or in an inner city where they're surrounded by harmful people. I mean, either one is scary, either extreme. So um, just be aware of your sense of feeling safe. It's your sense of safety that will tell you if you can trust someone or not. And if you don't trust someone a lot, you can still be around them. You just don't say much deep conversations. You just don't have deep conversations with them. You know, like sacred subjects used to be until social media, which I, I think is an oxymoron. There's nothing social about it. But, um, the, the, uh, there were sacred subjects, politics and religion. Nobody talked about that. They didn't. And I know this is a, this is just, you know, cause I'm, I'm a lot older and, uh, I remember those times and people did tend to get along. You you could actually survive like that. Very strong bonds of people who may totally disagree about things that agree to disagree. We've kind of lost that skill in the overall uh, amount of society or it's not about repressing it either. It's just, you know, if you have a feeling that somebody may not believe in the same thing you do, well, that's self-actualization. You can go, okay, we probably won't agree on that, but we can still enjoy a good friendship.
1: Right, right. That that's something oh, I've thought about Bill a lot. Bill Clinton,
0: Bill Clinton, and and George H. Walker Bush, the dad, they were good friends. I mean, they did not agree with each other, but they found they found this common bond. Yeah, D- Dick Cheney and Bono and George Bush the son saved people in Africa from starvation. They were the they 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 meet together all the time. They they don't. Somebody asked, I, I love Bono's interview. They said, was it was it cool? For, it wasn't cool for you to be seen in a picture with George Bush. And he said, it wasn't cool for him either. We weren't caring about being cool. We wanted to feed children that were starving. Don't you love that? See, to me, that's that solution. Fo- and I'm a solution-focused therapist. So I believe in look, pr- focusing on solutions instead of problems. And as a mediator, I'm looking for common ground instead of the divisive ground. Because if I can find the common ground, then the divisions start to kind of lose their power and we we gain an agreement that both people have collaborated on not compromised but collaborated semantics mm-hmm. are very important
1: and with the the example that you just gave I, I just made me think of i don't know if i think i heard this from elon musk i don't know if he got this from someone else but just he said like the size of your problems is the size of your life in the sense of you know if if you're the, if your biggest problem is, you know, you're trying to figure out how to, you know, feed Africa or whatever, you know, then you're not going to be so upset that you don't agree, you know, on, on a petty issue with someone. But if you don't have anything going on in your life, if, if you don't really have much of a life, then, you know, I feel like that's like the internet, the online trolls that just, those people are nobodies, the people who are, you know, always criticizing and writing hateful comments and like, Mm Those people, if those people had big problems, like good problems within their own lives that they were trying to tackle, I feel like they wouldn't be so, you know, quick to judge everyone else.
0: Right. And you know, we're talking about negative neural pathways staying codependents have them too. They that's what I don't care what a codependent says to me because I have been the worst offender. The losses I suffered as a codependent by giving till I give out, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you name it. I I was one of the worst offenders. But when I started focusing on the solution instead of complaining about the person, remember I had this big diary of things my ex-husband had done and he wasn't my ex-husband yet. And I I started just tossing it in the fire just because I lived in Tennessee and Nashville and I was a songwriter. So I was tossing, I wasn't a therapist yet, but I was in school for therapy. And I said, I'm going to quit complaining and I'm going to start focusing on a solution. I'm going to start working on me and not caring about what he does or doesn't do. And when you start working on the bigger picture, and I said, I'm going to help people and no one's going to suffer like I do. And that is my purpose, passion and compassion. You know, when you have compassion means like passions. When you, Elon Musk, I have not heard him say that, but that's beautiful. He he gave us the idea that maybe we could recolonize Mars. (laughs) I mean, he's a big thinker because he sees this planet suffering. So whether we get there or not, you know, he's, he's made it actually a viable, possible. Re- I live in Florida, you do too. We, we have reusable rockets being shot off on the East Coast here every week and they come back down. I mean, so when you think outside the box, you don't start thinking about what you can criticize, you start thinking about what you can make better. So even if you don't like Elon Musk or not, he's the big thinker, he is. Like him or not, he's a very complex person. He says he has Asperger's, but even though he has Asperger's, wow, what an insightful, compassionate thing to say. If you worry more about what people think about you or what you think about expounding on your opinion, instead of trying to make things better, it'll change your life. That takes your negative neural pathways and puts them to the positive. And in the context of codependency, I have a whole uh, section in there about synergy and philanthropy philanthropy, because there's a synergy to philanthropy. I, I have a special cause that I just absolutely despise is human trafficking. It's just, you know, we all have a thing that we really, truly just jabs us where we just can't. And and I'll spare you, you know, the details, why the roots of it, I've done all the work, but still hate the problem. It's a huge problem right now. I cannot walk into a human trafficker's house (laughs) and rescue anyone, but I can find out who's out there doing that work and I can give to them financially. I can get on a podcast and you know start talking about the problem and how big it is. I can write an article about it and give some, shed some light on it. I can do my part, which is the part of philanthropy. If I go in there and try to rescue people, I'm going to get killed. Do you see the difference between codependency and philanthropy and the synergy of philanthropy? That's what we're doing right now. We're having a synergistic conversation to help people realize they can change their life by just changing their neural pathways and reframing them to the positive, to seek solutions instead of focusing on problems.
1: Great. Yeah. Is there any that like you alluded to meditation much earlier in the podcast, um, as far as like a tool that you use yourself? Like, are there any other resources that, you know, can really kind of increase people's like, self-awareness and, and harness that neuroplasticity um, so they can use it for, for the good rather than being a victim to it.
0: Yes. And it's so easy. Toby, it's so easy. Don't shoot the messenger. Just go outside in nature. Even if you live in a big city, there's a green space somewhere. I used to live in big cities. There's green spaces everywhere. Um, find a green space with birds singing and nature. Don't be around anybody. Don't take anybody else on a walk with you. Go by yourself. Listen to your breathing. There's such a thing as a walking meditation. I just call it walking. There's such a thing as grounding. I just call it being with yourself. You're not being alone. I do not like the concept of I'm alone. It's alone time. No, it's solitude. You're being at one with yourself. When you start paying attention, like, oh, wow. That's how I notice when when someone's upset me. It's when I leave their presence. They go, I am so drained. You didn't notice it when you were with them because you were so hyper-focused on making them happy or, you know, uh, being in the conversation uh, or trying to please someone. No, it's when you're alone out with yourself in solitude, you go, okay, so nature nurtures, you reset. Anytime I want to reset my brain, I go to the beach if I'm vacations. Absolutely. You know, I have a podcast. I just did one on vacations. They're the same thing as meditation. They do the same thing to the brain. And if you can't afford one, I get it, but take a different way home from work every day. Stop at a store you've never been to go to an event. You don't think you'd even like if you know something, something change it up. Even if it's only in your own hometown. There's some place in your own hometown you've never been. I know so many Floridians who have not been to Disney World, and that's okay. It's like, it's right there. And there's free parts of it. I mean, it's like, just they, they just refuse to even think about, no, I'm not going. There's too many people. Well, you know, do check, check it out. Because when you're in a big crowd too, you can also be in solitude. There's nothing better than, I remember walking through Manhattan. I said, I've never been around more people and lonelier in my whole life. It's like really weird. So you can be in solitude, even in a place where there's a lot of people, but just to be in tune with yourself and kind of draw your own energy and personal space in and listen to how you feel about you, not how you feel about other people, but how you feel about you. And if you don't like you, then you might want a therapist. You need to figure out how to like you. Cause if you like you, you'll like other people better. Really? You will. If you're at peace with yourself, you'll be at peace with people just criticizing you and you go, okay, that's their opinion of me. I have no intention of changing it. Your opinion of me does not change my opinion of myself. I'm a work in progress. They may have touched a nerve and said something that's true for you even, like you're too this or you're too that. Well, yeah, I am working on it. But mm. you don't have to even take in criticism.
1: Yeah, no, I, I like what you what you just said there about not letting other people's opinions of you change your opinion of yourself. And that, mm-hmm. gosh, I feel like that's, that's something just like looking at my life. I mean, and probably everyone or most other people would have similar experiences kind of like growing up. It's like you do, you know, as like in high school or whatever, you care so much about what other people think of you. Cause the goal is yes. to just fit in and be cool. And you're not, it's not cool at that point. I don't think to really be yourself. It's cool to just fit in and be like other people. Right. But then right. it's like, as you, I feel like as I've grown up as, uh, you know, into adulthood, it's like, you know, a lot less about what those other opinions like you realize like that doesn't really matter too much and why should that influence what I think of myself
0: exactly absolutely the truth yes when I was in high school and I was in a really difficult school too. <laughs> really I was in a diff- very difficult school and I pretended to be stupid so people would like me better so people from that school, some of them still think I'm really, really stupid, which I totally blame myself for. I take full responsibility for playing that role. And I'm still happy go lucky. I mean, pretty much if something bad happens, I'll find the humor in it. Or if I can't find the humor, I'll at least find, I'll, I'll go seek solitude and solution and healing. I do that. But yeah, if something's not serving you well, like even if you're playing the tough person, a lot of people put on that tough facade. and There's a big difference between being tough and strong but you know in in high school i was like really a serious geek and nobody knew it i was reading all i was reading my father's medical books i was working in his office i was fascinated with neuroscience it was in the seventies, there wasn't much to it yet. I was fascinated with human behavior. My father taught me nature was more important than nurture, you know, shoot me, shoot me if you want the messenger. But, um, I mean, now we know DNA has a lot to say. So that was the kind of stuff I was dabbling into. I I did have an English teacher who guided me out. I turned in some poems and she said to me, you little sh, you know what? That's how that's, how she talked. And she said, how dare you write like this and act like an airhead. And I would have been upset with her if it wasn't true. So I appreciate that person calling me out. And um, so if there's somebody in your life that's calling you out and you know it to be true for you, and you know that there's there, they had, and I knew she had my best interest at heart. She really did. She wasn't mean at all. She, she held me again, like my other, a graduate school professor held me after class. She recognized something. So do pay attention to those mentors in life. They're not tormentors, they're mentors. And mentors are not your friends. They're not all that nice all the time, but they can change the trajectory of your life. She told me to never stop writing and I never did. So do you see how one, I had none of those compliments at home. And as none of them, that was not even on the radar, but there was a person who really believed in me and it felt like torment at first, but she was really a mentor. So I appreciate that. So pay attention to people who do have your best interest at heart, who may be blunt and say that.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, well it said. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, Mary, we're coming up on to the end of the show. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, for the listeners who want to you know, connect with you or find out more about your work or get your book mm-hmm. uh, or books are you, is it more than one? or you just the, is it the one
0: book? Right. I'm working on another one about how to deal another. with a narcissist while, while you, <laughs> while you, you, how to navigate one when you can't get away from them. Cause I'm sorry, you just can't go no contact with them all. They're your parents, <laughs> your co-parenting. So I'm working on that, but right now I have lots of courses on daily ohm. Dot com. I have some more coming out this year too. They're, they can find me there. It's dailyom.com. And it's just Mary Joy, J-O-Y-E. It has an E on the end. And then my book is called Codependent Discovery and Recovery 2.0, a holistic guide to, uh, a holistic approach to healing and freeing yourself. So you're really going to get a self-help experience in there. At the end of every chapter is the what you don't want, what you do want. And on YouTube, there's meditations. You don't even have to do the meditations. There's none over 12 minutes. They're there. So at the end, you're only left with what's, what's right for you because you're writing on the left what you don't want and on the right what you do want. So that hopefully that will help people. I try to make it to make the complex simple. It isn't easy, but it's simple. And I just wish everyone well. And I'm on Winterhavencounseling.com too if they want coaching or anything like that.
1: Perfect. Perfect. We'll we'll include links to all that in the show notes and uh, for the listeners. Um, If you guys did enjoy the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's NeuroFlex. You can see the full podcast episodes along with podcast clips on that channel. And then also, if you want to subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to the podcasts on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major audio streaming platforms, we are on them all. Uh, so Mary, again, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing all of your, your knowledge and expertise with the audience today.
0: Thank you, Toby. And you ask great questions. I love these conversations that flow. Just so everyone knows, we didn't have these pre-planned. So, nope. <laughs> so thank you. We, it just, it flowed. So thank you. And, and I, I really appreciate the, the, good, the, the good synergy of this conversation. I hope it helps a lot of people.